I don't think it's working. Well, there's lights. Let me uh, ask in the back. Can you hear me in the back? Is there a mic? Okay, great. Oi. Uh, we're almost, almost mid, whoa, this, yeah, maybe not too much. I probably will have to. I want to blow anyone's ears. Uh, yeah, well, I'll, I'll try to concentrate if I'm, is it too much if I'm here? Is that fine? Or can you hear me or not? Yeah, you're good? Okay, so in worst case, I'll get here and I won't be blasting anyone. Uh, this is a really... How is everyone? Everyone's okay? Is she? It's strange. I, I, when I was uh, speaking with the, um, the technician who uh, lent me the, the pack, I think because we started off, like there's three weeks that are, uh, that are missing. It, I don't know how you feel about getting to midterms this quick. Is every, does everyone feel that it went like really quick? Yeah. Are you okay? Okay, um, well, yes, that's the thing, is that since I'm, I know that we haven't uh, signed the Entente uh, d'Evaluation yet, because I thought I had it in my emails, but I don't, and I need to go get it at the, de at the department, then I'm going to ask, will this help you out if you have an extra week? Because I, there's a trap. It can, I might be pushing you into, like, more work, because you have other classes, but if I don't ask for it by next week, but by the week afterwards, does that in majority help you out? Yes. You're right. You're absolutely right. But next class is uh, Hemingway and Fitzgerald. I'm not ready, like, I, that, that class isn't done yet. The class afterwards is the history of graphic novels. I have that class right here. Like, I could do that right now. So I will, I will be more available to correct. That being said, if some people want, because I, I, like, next two weeks, I'm really working on those novels. If you want to hand it earlier, It'll just make everything go quicker. But having something to be handed in in the middle of the week, in the middle of the, the, um, the, of the break, considering that things are oddly feeling out of place, and I, I feel like for the majority of you, last week was the moment where you grasped what was to be done. So that doesn't really give, like I, I'm still receiving emails this morning of people saying, oh, I, I picked this novel. So like it might not be perfect, but. I especially don't want to push you into further work. So if, if it's done, if it's over, if you're okay with it, send it over by uh, next Tuesday. And if you want the extra week, take the extra week. And when we'll be back, I'll, I'll sign the, the uh, evaluation, attendre uh, d'evaluation. I don't know how you say that in English. Okay, it's just really strange because I think like those three weeks are a period of adjustment where we lean uh, like, um, learn to know each other, and as I was saying when we were doing the uh, Uniquely Podcast classes, I don't feel like we've 
known each other during those times. It was like a dematerialized, like, whoa. Okay, so that's good. Is, are the midterms wrecking you? Is, are you okay? Yep. Yeah? Okay. 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 Has to have to be thought well in advance to get to that point when you get there. Okay, that's good. It's uh, like I can't, I have no, I think I've said this, I, I don't know the department of ESL. I have no contacts. I have no, <laughs> like I don't know them. It's you crazy. I know you, yes, and I know like last semester's class. I, I learned last week that, uh, I, like thank you again, thank you very much, that appeased my mind. Like I, I had like a, an inner turmoil with a misunderstanding why I was here, why I was uh, giving a class, because uh, you've always, the uh, lit classes by in ESL are always done, always given by the same person, Francois Jean Bernard. So when I started getting those classes two years ago, I was like, what the hell's going on? Maybe he doesn't want to teach in COVID time, so I, I, might I might be on what we call the ejectable seat. So I'm just giving these classes, working very hard to put them up, and then next semester I'm out. So that is kind of, uh, there's a lot of um, precociousness around that. But thank you very much for informing me that Francois Jalot has, uh, has retired. <laughs> so I'm not doing this like, <laughs> not that I'm doing it for nothing, I'm doing it for you. But it's just like, it's good to know that I'm, I'm aging a lot quicker for a reason. Yes. No, no, you're right. I haven't done them yet. I can do it, and it's if it helps, I'll do it tomorrow or tonight. Uh, no, to not tonight, but tomorrow. I can do, like there's that, and there was another email that was asked for the readings. There are certain things that haven't been decided yet. Um, I've, I've decided on mouse. I just need to put it online. I've decided on one of Margaret Atwood's short stories in Stone Mattress. I think it's called, uh, I can't remember what it's called, but it's about, uh, I can't remember the title of it. It's not Dangerous Landscape, but it's something of the sort. It's close to those types of stories that she, she wrote, she's written. As I was saying earlier on, I have not really prepared, like I know well enough of Hemingway and Fitzgerald to be able to put on that class, but I haven't prepared that yet, so I don't really have that story. Afterwards, it goes up to Harlem Renaissance and uh, a Beloved of History of Horror. I think Beloved, I already put it, it's The Lottery by Sh uh, Shelley Jackson. So I can't, what's the other ones that, what's the other one that's missing? I'm missing, th there was a Canlet. There's missing the Harlem Renaissance. Is that it? That's the lottery. Oh yeah, no, that's a uh, Harrison Bergeron. Yeah. It's not there? Okay. So we're just missing the next class, I think. Okay, cool. So that should be it, yes. He supports that I've started. We met on Friday, I think. He's supposed to have started working on it. He's a lot better than I am. He's really good. He's really good. I had like questions about stuff and he was like, oh no, don't worry about that. Like <laughs> yes. Exactly. 
You're right on target. That's fine. And I'm just going to be. That's why, like, I think I'll be able during that week of correction, just do like 10 a day. Just, okay, this is fine. Uh, okay, so that's for that. Uh, I think I've done it. Oh, yeah, yeah, I wanted to add this. Just in case, because sometimes I, I know this helps me. Maybe it'll help one of you. Yeah, you got a week, a week extra. It's fine, it's fine. Uh, I read uh, Midnight Library. I don't know who, uh, who had that. Thanks. It was a good read. It was really interesting. There's a lot of... Um, it comes from a very rich tradition in literature, especially uh, late, uh, Latin American. So if you're ever interested in going that, in that direction, there's a lot of uh, Latin American writings, especially around what they call the um, magic realism that is very much present in uh, Midnight Library. That was a quick read. It was fun. Um, I, I can also scope, like, I, I have no idea the impact of booktube and how it is on your life, but now I'm like, I'm, I'm Googling titles, I'm going, oh, okay, this one's uh, very, it's, it's really fun. I'm, these are not the types of uh, novels that we hear about, in, uh, and not, I'm not doing, like, a, any form of uh, value judgment, it's just, like, I'm being exposed to what has been popular in the fa last three to four years. It's, it's, uh, it is very interesting for me also. So thank you for that. Okay, I, as I said, I'm not a, li like I, th I think I've presented this. I, I don't speak a lot of myself, so any time that I have to speak on my behalf, I feel like I've never said this before. I'm a, um, uh, uh, I'm a doctoral student in semiotics, so my specialty isn't literature. My specialty is philosophy of language. And this is where I'm going, this is as much of semiotics that you're going to hear of me today because I have like three presentation, like three uh, objects or understandings of literature that I, I really want to pass on for you to understand a little bit more of the, of the um, structure of this class. Like I, I try as a sort of test on myself to never do the same type of class twice. So every class is built in a different manner. This one is a lot less around the authors and a lot more around the uh, dynamics of fiction. So that's why I need to go to semiotics for this. The, you're probably not going to do literature and language. So just basically semiotics is the understanding of the use of words and why certain words are used and why certain words are understood in a certain manner. So the example that I use is basically when I say the word chair, semiotics is the understanding that everyone in your minds here in this class, everyone has a convention of what chair means. So everyone has that four or three 
or sometimes two-legged object on which we sit on, but no one has the same chair in their mind. So there is a link in semiotics, what we call le, uh, le signifiant et le signifié, the signified and the signifier, is that relationship in between what we will call like a, a audio cue, the word chair, is something that is entirely random, has nothing to do with the objects on which you are sitting right now. But in conventionality, we all understand when I say chair, I'm speaking of that. Even though I'm not speaking of that one, everyone has that chair in their mind. That's what semiotics reflects upon, is understanding why certain words are used in certain contexts or how those contents, contexts, the definitions and the understandings can slide and are, inter like, um, are traded through communication. Is that clear? That's the clearest thing I can do around that. Because there's going to be a lot of semiotics in this class, but they're around Sherlock Holmes because he operates in a very semiotic manner. But first of all, in language, there, is, there are two paradigms that we take into consideration in semiotics. is what they call the syntagmatique and paradigmatic. Sorry, I say them in French because I was taught them in French and I don't want to stumble on them. So the syntagmatic axis is basically the understanding of how we construct a sentence, how we construct a phrase. A phrase for it to be syntactic, syntagmatic, is something that uh, respects a rule of understanding of how we speak. If I start switching terms around, the phrase or the sentence will become asyntactic, will not be understood in the same manner. S by saying that, French and English and German and all that have different syntaxes. If you take a French uh, sentence and you translate it immediately into English, it will be reversed most of the time because it's a different form of syntagmatic axis. So that phrase, the man cried, is if I said, cried man thee, if I said, uh, man thee cried or uh, thee cried man, I'm trying to do this in Yoda speak, but it doesn't work as well with these <laughs> phrases, but you get the understanding of le syntagme. Le syntagme is knowing instinctively in the education of language, knowing the elements where they need to be put to be understood. And le paradigmatique is the encyclopedia or the dictionary in this case of words that you can use to replace them. So syntagmatique is just understanding the sentence. Paradigmatique is understanding all the words that can be used in those spaces. Yes? Parts of speech, yeah. It's because like here, you don't have, these aren't synonyms. It's really like, you can say the man died, the man sang, the girl cried. The paradigma, uh, paradigmatic is really understanding the words. I keep um, envisioning them as uh, scroll menus that you'll get often on your phones, just like this wheel of words constantly um, being re-initialized, so you have all these elements, one in another, and you can choose for what you tried to say. So this is very important because <coughs> these are operations that we do not know that we're doing. When we use language, these are unconscious operations of decoding, uh, well, of coding when we are trying to express our thoughts, and of decoding when someone is receiving our thoughts. Things need to have a certain structure to be able to decode. It's very much semiotics. Everything works up till, up till here? Okay. You're also doing this when you read. Okay, when you read, there is an operation of decoding. 
you are taking words that you know mean something or that you don't know what they mean, and you are using certain um, intellectual properties to be able to decipher and to decode what is being said. In the process of, uh, of reading, this one was presented uh, for the first time or in this type of manner by Umberto Eco in uh, Lectar in Fabula. Once again, you're not doing huge lit studies, so we're not going to go too far on this one. But what uh, Eco presented is a thing that was called, is a concept called les mondes possibles et incompossibles. Sorry, I do not know how these are called in English. Uh, what Eco was saying in uh, Lectar in Fabula is that when when you are reading, you are activating the order of coding decoding that you understand since using language in your childbirth, in your in your uh, during your, at your birth, not childbirth. Sorry, uh, since your birth, <laughs> re-understanding re language post childbirth. Um, but when you're reading, you're also what you're doing is your reading a path in provision of what you think is going to happen. So this is where Echo says that there are possible worlds and incompossible worlds. Les mondes possibles et incompossibles. The possible worlds are, if you're close enough to the text, you pretty much can read one or two lines in advance. Since there is an inherent logic to it, you're following through with the logic of the text. And by one, uh, yeah, sorry. Let's go, just before so I open it up. In the reading we, we've done this week, basically, one could argue Neil Gaiman really plays on our yes. aptitude to try and figure out the punchline and flip that Flips over. it over, yeah, exactly. Because the basis of a detective story is that you should feel that you're being led through the investigation, but you should never know the solution before it is, a pr is, a, it is uh, presented to you. So that's where writing detective fiction is really complex because you have to lead people in a certain direction. But if someone already knows the culprit by page seven, well, they probably won't continue or they'll go like, I know, I know who killed it, bam, stop it. Or close the book. What's a sham dog story? Yeah, the it was all a dream is pretty. Well, there's a lot. Sherlock functions a lot in that manner, so I understand why people are <coughs> would say that. But I feel that it's if you say that, it's misunderstanding how those stories are crafted, mm -hmm. because it's very obvious in in the, the the Conan Doyle short stories that Sherlock knows maybe. Sherlock knows the culprit even before he says that he knows the culprit. So the sham dog is pretty much around the reader where 
the reader is also in a situation, especially with characters like Sherlock, of trusting him to be smarter than you are. So maybe not like the dream because it doesn't, the study in Emerald doesn't finish with a dream. Well, no, 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 it's just the, the comparison between yeah. the fact that all, all of this happened and meant something and suddenly it was all a dream so it meant nothing. So the yeah. I, I don't necessarily subscribe to that, but I wanted to talk to you about it, what you think of it, because I've heard it presented pretty confidently as a standout story. And I, was yeah. uh, I think that, well, there's, th Especially with, am I? No, okay, there it is. Yeah, <laughs> this is great for them. I think modern audiences have a lot more problems with that, of people feel like there's, there is a refinement in people's reading, and I will get to that, or of how people are, are getting really good at reading stuff. And maybe during that time, the um, artifice of fiction might have been less attackable, because we're living in fictional times more than we were during that time. So. Exactly, so maybe that's it. It's informing of like, I've seen this a thousand times. You've seen it a thousand times because Sherlock Holmes has bred two million stories afterwards. So, you know, if you go back to the source, it's pretty obvious that you know, like, like I was saying last week, everyone knows Pride and Prejudice because we've like read all that's qui a découlé de ça. We know them like by heart. So it's pretty obvious that you go back, you're like, well, that's not really original. You're like, well, in 1836 it was. <laughs> yes. Let's go. Yeah. Curious, the way I understand it, it's like your brain kind of goes through these uh, Rolodexes really quickly to kind of put out the scenario. Mm -hmm. I'm curious if the connection with this or uh, difficulty when it comes to dyslexia or like learning disabilities. Wow, that's a good question. Does that make sense? So it's like an, it, it, a struggle to go from scenario to scenario in this sense? That's a really good question. I have no idea. I have no experience with. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> oh, wow, that's a really good idea, yeah. Because it is, it's, like, dyslexia is, um, although it is very much treated, like, it's not a modern problem, but it's a problem that's getting a lot more complicated in our modern times because, potentially, it is linked to the understanding of stories and how I feel like we're, we are living in a world where we understand things a lot better if we treat them as fiction. And that's why there's a lot of fictionalization of reality that's being done right now so that people are able to accept it. So maybe if there is something in dyslexia that is a misunderstanding or, or a, a difficulty in connecting, it would be very problematic right now. Yeah. No, I'm oh, yeah. I'm dyslexic and so I kind of like know some of the science because I know it's changed since like the late 90s. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It was all about vision. So it used to be about like... The, the, models just just the well I I'm very sympathetic to that because there is a structure in society that we we are you know you get on or you don't really understand and when you don't really understand people will find like well, why aren't you just getting on like it's not that yeah. simple no 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 Absolutely. So thinking about this of like the kids aren't reading until they come into kindergarten for example, how small their Rolodex is mm -hmm. compared compared to students who have been reading like you know, I, how much these are already 
I think you're absolutely right. And even in a more artistic point of view, I feel like being exposed to archetypal stories helps a lot in saying, oh yeah, that, that story. There's already like one branch of have, uh, being exposed to those types of situations through the empathy machine that is literature. Like the, the fact that you might not have lost uh, a lover <laughs> in a cave or whatever, but I remember reading a story about that. So you're like, you're already like not experienced, but you have a, a familiarity with that. So that's why there, mu there must be something there. And I, I feel there is. This will come up later on because I, I very much believe, believe in uh, the education in the arts and in the budgets towards the education. Uh, it's more in the 60s and 70s that this becomes really a, a crux. But I, I firmly believe that people that are educated in stories and how fiction is built navigate our troubled times in a better manner because there's a, an understanding of um, mise en scène, how the, the dramatic persona, how it comes up. And, but yeah, and the, the, well, that's your job. That's what you're all going to be doing. <laughs> I, I got you like a little late. Yes. Oh yeah. Sentence because there's an emotional connection that you make, and it makes you like think deeper and deeper. Whereas when I read Sandstorm, it is like it is what it is. Yeah, it very much so. That's really interesting. Yeah, of like a, a flourished language helps you get like the what they call the um, in language there's the, the maybe in English it's called this, but in French it's called la fonction la fonction fatigue which is how emotions pass through language. So like the, and even like la fonction fatigue is really interesting because it's, it functions in orality. Like people will uh, augment the phatic function with their intonation and their language and how the body expresses itself. But how can you put language in, in words of being understood like apart from punctuation and like how do words and certain, uh, um, alliances between words, how are they able to bring something like there's a lot in music of that, the these tongues, things like that. So yeah, that's really, really interesting. Thank you for saying that. I did not know. I'm, I'm really not informed of this. But uh, back to Rico, what he was thinking, and this is also like, this will connect with maybe the more popular idea of possible worlds, is that Rico firmly believed that when you're reading, you're operating this type of deduction. You're two steps ahead of fiction. And by being two steps ahead of fiction, and since fiction is fixed in what it's doing, you are creating a, a possible world in your reading. So when you're reading, you're advancing the text, you're going quicker than your eyes, and you're imagining more, or you're imagining the, the elements of what's to come. And when you're doing that, when you're imagining what's coming up, you are creating that world. And the author will confirm that world, so, oh yeah, okay, that's obvious, it's going in there. Or it will completely deviate from that world. So every time you're reading something, you are creating a world that the author allows you, like, will confirm or infirm. So that's why les mondes possibles et les impossibles, is that you're, you're decoding what is on the page 
but you're also activated in your mind as to what is coming up and what could happen. I'm giving these cues a lot more because we're, we are in detective stories. So detective stories are read as every single element on the page is a cue, or is a clue, sorry, to be able to decipher that person. Oh, it's that person. And that idea of constantly accusing, like in, in a detective story, if you're constantly accusing people, you are creating these worlds. You're creating worlds where, oh, that's, that's the, the, the culprit. That's, and then, oh, nope, the story just said it's the wrong person. And you're creating these worlds of alternative stories until the author gives you his or hers. There was a question. I just can't remember. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, I've, I, I've not, I'm not a huge reader, but it's, it's that fine line. It's very much uh, having, it's, it's, a, it's a very precise type of language and a very precise type of storytelling because you don't want to irritate your reader by constantly breaking away from their worlds, but you cannot make them have the final word before you have the final word. So, like in my in the best case scenario of what you're presenting is always being close enough, but not being like a, you know well, oh yeah yeah I really really understood and then the author goes on that side that's super frustrating, but always kind of functioning in a yeah, exactly it's fishing yeah that's the the perfect metaphor it's just giving a little line pulling in giving a little line pulling in, and that's I think what people. Uh, appreciate or like that the the um, the pleasure principle in that type of reading is that is yes. Well, I think one of the big hurdles sometimes is to prize your readers as being written in a way that's coherent to the story that you have presented, and that's sometimes it's kind of a failure of some authors. It's like, yeah, sure, the ending is surprising, but that's because it makes no sense at all. Yeah, well, that's why I said like that potential scenario is a, a scenario that displeases. There's nothing, like um, people that read detective fiction and even like in general, people that read novels are micro detectives through the story. So if you're completely obliterating the possibility of following the story because the author wants to make its presence felt. Well, it kind of makes the point of reading a story is like non-existent. Yeah, because you're like, okay, well you, <laughs> you're driving. <laughs> so I, I think there's something very fine here, but there's also something very fine in, in the cooperation, because that's something that we don't really consider in, in literature and in fiction, is that there is cooperation between the person that's reading and the person that's writing. Uh, that is also, do I go there now? Nope, I'm fine. <laughs> uh, for people who've watched Loki, basically like the ending of the Loki machine, that's what it is. It's just, there's time travel in Loki and there, they, there's this institution that is making sure that there is one single timeline that is the continuity and like things will always happen in this manner. Mon possible et incompossible is at the end, the machine breaks out and there are branches coming out of everywhere with alternative ways of telling stories in the, at the, in the MCU. This is le mon possible. 
but they're not, they're activated in the story, they're not activated by readers. But in uh, Echo's uh, understanding of reading, this is all under your control. That being said, the, the fact, I will go there after all, the fact that, and this is solely very, very personal, I feel like in what I was saying, people, uh, people who are well-read or people that have read in a long, uh, for a long time, the muscle of creating worlds, understanding worlds, and operating in the coherence of the world that they're presented is stronger because you've tested that muscle out. I feel that that is like the pulse towards fan fiction comes from there. People who have read a lot of texts and realize that there are potential stories in branching out of the official story by saying, oh, this is great, but what if they were lovers? What if that person had died? And that's really like uh, the, the, the possible world's muscle activating itself and then people going, wait, I, I do have a story here. It would be great. Start writing it. And then someone reads it and there's another branching out that, that emerges from that type of reading. So there is also this, like I'm also revealing of my, of a lot of my convictions towards literature, but uh, there's um, like the idea of originality, the idea of being uh, unique and having offered something in literature that only you have written or have thought about because you're a literary genius. That's a really difficult thing to measure up to. And it's also a very modern thing because we didn't really uh, accord that much importance to um, originality earlier on. Like even like when we were speaking of Shakespeare, Shakespeare took stories like uh, he, like there were, there were two plays with Jewish moneylenders during the same year in Victorian times. There was uh, the Jew of Malta and um, Merchant of Venice and no one cared. It's not that thing of like, oh, you could have been original. It, no, people are just there for the good story. And there's something very modern in having that original good story that is not very present in what we've, or what we're going to see. Like originality is not that important in the end. Yes? You should. On study of Emerald and Hercule Poirot? Okay, yeah. Well, there's nothing really. No, but you're you're right in your instincts, but there's nothing really that rel that connects them in that story, because. On uh, Christie. Well, I think because it's so obviously, especially like like off the bat with the title, it's so obviously a Sherlockian pastiche that, you know, like not going around and looking at other detectives of that time. It's where I say that your instinct is really is right is because they're writing the same types of stories. But the. Uh, I don't, I, I'm, I, yeah. 
Scarlett, yeah. Yeah. But no, no, it's, it's you, you actually have a really good, it's a really good question. It's just like the phrasing where they, they don't want you to go somewhere else is that I think Gaiman himself was very much um, honest in saying what I'm doing is Sherlock meets Lovecraft, boom. So trying to add something else there is like if you, if, if it wasn't that clear, if it wasn't that, then you do, it, it could be very interesting. Like I'll, I'll, I'll go for like a really tangible example here. Knives Out. Yeah. Knives Out, the uh, Ryan Johnson, the last film that uh, he directed, mm -hmm. is a murder mystery. The uh, title character, the, not the title character, I can't remember the name of the detective in it. Benoit Blanc. Blanc, Blanc. okay. <laughs> Benoit Blanc is a composite of many detectives. He has certain Sherlockian tropes and aspects. He has certain Poirot things. If you take Knives Out and you're saying, what does Knives Out owe to Agatha Christie? It's a lot easier because your central detective figure is obviously pulling from that tradition or uh, from many traditions. Exactly. Well, he's, he's a composite. He's many detectives put into one saying, let's see how this works out. And detectives, detective, like uh, famous central detectives work also in that manner where we'll have characters that are, he's a little bit Sherlock, but he's not on cocaine. He's just drunk all the time <laughs> and he's Irish. So, but he hates his wife, you know, it's, and then you, okay, okay. He's a little bit of that, a little bit of that. And then you end up with Detective Rebus, like basically. That's why, like, if you're taking a study in Emerald, it's so this is Sherlock versus Cthulhu that if you're getting someone else, it, it's, not, it's not conclusive. But the instinct for the detective novel is, is great. You're right. But you'll have modern detectives right now that I, none come to mind for the moment, but you'll have that are, are, are a lot more inspired of Agatha Christie's tradition than of Conan Doyle's tradition or from another one but you just need to find them. Hmm. I'm trying to find one, but I, I don't know my stories well enough. Yes? Yeah, it just makes me, makes me think of what you said, that once the text has no more room for interpretation, it just yeah. comes to the dead. Mm -hmm. like, um, I really enjoyed reading the uh, study in Emerald, but at the same time, I couldn't find any like new interpretations or anything on the internet. It's just like there's a whole plot, there's plots for incentives or stories, to investigate and realize that it's all reserved and blah 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 but I mean it's Lovecraft and Doyle and it's it is what it is and it's reserved very hard to find like new interpretations really? yeah. well even I felt like an imposter writing my yeah <laughs> my no but I essay because I couldn't find anything original coming from me I'm well that's I'm st I'm I'm echoing myself even though I did not know that you don't have to be original you just have to like not as like, although like the premise of the story is well done and you, do, you can't find a hidden gem, like I, I, I cannot believe that everyone's looking for a hidden gem because that's, it's very complicated. Unique readings are things, I'm being recorded, but let's go. In the field of literary studies, some people can, can, can have an entire career on, an, on a, a unique reading. They can read one book 
in a completely original manner and they can do their entire career with it. It's how rare that is. In Study of Emerald, when I, I, I thought like it was a really great text because it's easy to read. And it's also like the, con it's the star that points to all the constellations that I have in this class today. But how is it speaking of Lovecraft or how is it speaking of Sherlock is fine. Like the, don't put yourself too much pressure in being wholly original because there are so many readings out there. Don't, just, this is well done because he thought of that. And that's fine. Okay, cool. it, it doesn't, if you had told me, well, this is Sherlock seen under, super example, like I have no idea, but like um, the Sherlock that is, uh, the detective that is present in uh, Study in Emerald is very much the Sherlock that we find in the five seed story. I think that's what it's called. How and why? And then you go look, is it five seeds? Five orange pips, there you go. Explain how it's the Sherlock from Five Orange Pips. It's because he starts off by saying he won't find the solution or things of the sort. That's fine. I don't, that's why I say I'm echoing myself. I do not really believe in originality. It exists, but it can't be a standard because it's so complicated to, to get to. And yeah, it's more, you want us more to like analyze. Yeah, take a, take a bite of it and go, oh, this tastes like this. There's that and I feel that. It's, it's almost like wine tasting, yeah. <laughs> no, no, the, it, it, if, if everyone here is trying to blow my mind with something original, 50% are probably not going to make it, and my mind is going to be way too much blown. I c it can't be blown too much. <laughs> it can't be too much blown. That phrase doesn't work. Yes, yeah. sorry. <laughs> too much blown mind. My mind blown. Ugga booga. Dreaming. Yes? Oh, that's fine. You follow that, yeah, and especially in Sherlock, there's a lot of that conversation <laughs> in Sherlock. I'll, I'll get there, but yeah, yeah, exactly. You follow an, an instinct. You're like, oh, well, this reminds me of this. Let's see what's there. What is there? Do you have? Did you have a question? Okay, they're just feeling your. Okay, makes sense. Ooh, yes. <laughs> Oh yeah. The uh, fake ads that I had a lot of fun figuring <laughs> out uh, what, which ones were references, which ones were foreshadowing, which ones were backshadowing. I didn't uh, think of that. I just gave you the free version. You <laughs> yeah, you're right. You're, you're, yeah. How extracontextual features blur the line between reality and fiction. You did this. <laughs> you went like, oh, he knows what he's doing. He's uh, no, he doesn't know what he's doing. No, I did not know. I had no idea. I just gave you the free version that is on Neil Gaiman's site because Neil Gaiman has been very, especially in the last two years, he's um, for teachers, if you want to try it out, he's uh, made everything he's written available to teachers. So you just need to ask him. He's like, oh yeah, no problem, use it. That's what he's been doing for the last two years and studying Emerald. The fact that you <laughs> said, said, said you I know. 
Oh, oh, he's doing something smart here. Mm, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. I'd love. I'm super happy you did that. I can't. I cannot take credit for that one. That's we. Okay. So, whew. What's, no, there was. Okay. So this, everyone has understood. We're creating worlds. We're destroying worlds. Yes. <laughs> Sorry. I just said that like. What? Was it supposed to be like the time where we talk about like accepting emeralds or? We were supposed to talk about it? Yeah. I, I feel like I have not enough time for what I'm, I'm planning out to do in life. We can speak of it, but at, at five. <laughs> <laughs> like last week I felt really bad of ending it. I, I ended at five on the dot, so I'm, I'm really trying to do better. I, I'm sorry. But we should. But I, I feel like I'm, ah, we need to speak of more, more of this, more of that. Third, yes. If you guys need a half an hour to speak in, like I won't, like it's fine. I will prepare two hour classes instead of two hours and a half. It's fine. No, no, you're right. Well, you, uh, that's where we're up to this point in the semester where uh, I'm not the teacher. You like you are the teachers because you, well you, <laughs> well, <laughs> you have a lot more classes. Yeah, but y like in terms of classes about pedagogy, you are the authorities. I've I've done one thing at Concordia to be able to be a teacher. Like basically my entire preparation has been reading books all the time. So the being good teachers is your thing. But that's great. So that's why like week 15, it's very much uh, I bring the tomatoes and you just <laughs> tell me what I've been doing wrong. If you have something right now that you want me to like, thank you very much for doing that. If you want to have periods of discussion, let's go for it. It's fine. I just don't have those teacherly reflexes. That might be the reason why half of the class is not here most of the time. I might be just, no, I'm kidding. No, no, I, I, I very much believe in what I'm doing, but I cannot believe in what I'm not doing. And there are certain things that I'm not doing that could be good for this class. Does that make sense? Okay, so that's fine. I'll add that. Yes, I will add that. Oh, man, no. no. Okay, I will, I will. No, no, it's great, it's great. I just, <laughs> I, I get stuck up in these ways of doing. Okay, third one is one that you instinctively know once again is how a story, like the, the, the graph of the story bell curve. This is how a story unfolds in time. So you, you start off with presentations or what they call mini plots. So it's all of these little elements that give you the information necessary to understand what the intrigue is going to be about. The intrigue is the center part where we're really bringing up the action. And in the end, you have the conclusion, which is uh, the, um, the siege of catharsis. So where the emotions are expurged because you've, stories are, are thought up as a concentration of tension and the release of that tension. That's why there's something gratifying about listening, watching, hearing a story is that it, it, it satisfies something in the human condition of 
creating all these things where you're like, oh, I wonder how it's going to, ooh, ah, and then you feel super good. No, there's always like something. There's. Yeah. But it's not, it's not um, like that relation of tension isn't necessarily in the story, but it's, on, it's in you. So like th <laughs> those stories, you don't, you're not, you know, when you end them, there is a form of release, even though it's not in the story, because the, the, the reveal and the, the dash in the end ends it. But you're not finishing the story still on the, you know, it, it's yourself that has to let go. Yes. I can't remember the ending. I saw it in theaters when it came out. I can't remember. Yeah, well, that's the, what, what they call the open ending. Like I, I had a, my, my, my girlfriend is very much into, she loves to argue with people who did not like um, Denis Villeneuve's The Prisoner because it ends in that sort of manner. And she really loves to argue with people because everyone's like, well, it's open-ended. We don't know what happens. And she's like, if you watched the story correctly, everything is there. <laughs> everything is there. You just don't need it to be said. But if you're listening, you'll be fine. And she gets really like, this is my best imitation of her when she's speaking of this film. She's <laughs> like, but the, the open-ended is still allowing you, like it, it is, the open-end is this. The open-end is trusting in your, in the creation of your world or not. But if you don't, like there's, there's been the, the entire debate around the ending of The, the Sopranos. Yeah. How people have, the, have hated the ending of The Sopranos because it is an open end. Well, that's one of the things in, and let's get into the crux of, the, of this class, it's still there, yeah, is when you're doing serialized fiction, what you're constantly doing is adding stuff here. Like the initial situation is always the same. There should be a conclusion, but you're keeping the story alive by adding things in here to make the curve either go higher or maintain intention. And that is a pretty dangerous game to play, especially when you're doing serialized fiction on a long form because there is the idea of if you're going to be extending this curve, the payoff better be good. <laughs> and that is like the double-edged sword of writing in serial, uh, serial form is that if you're making the curve go higher, the tension demands a bigger release. But if you're keeping it in a, like a, as a marathon, we can say, of keeping the tension at the same level, but pulling it in time, people will also be adding on to the expectancies of the ending. So that's in a very schematic way, 
why TV series never really end in a appreciative manner. Like why the more seasons there is, the more it is a risk to finish your TV series. Because eventually people will go, it was all that for that. Game of Thrones is a great example of that, of how people, like everything in the ending of Game of Thrones, no, but let's, it's not an opening of the debate, but every element in the ending of Game of Thrones is coherent with the text, but it's not the thing that people wanted to blow their load off. And that, yeah, that, that's kind of the issue with writing complete. The agony of, yeah, the more you wait, the more expectations you have. You're building up, you're building up, and then, that's why like, I consider The Sopranos a, a perfect ending because he did not give anything to anyone. He just went like, <laughs> I'm not even ending. He's, he's eating some fries. There you go. And No Country for All Men is the same thing, is that you, especially I, I believe like in the flatness of the film, everything, you're like, something's going to happen, something's going to happen, something eventually. Like You're constantly creating tension out of nothing of having just these characters once in a while beating someone, the, the yeah, boot. There's a soundtrack either. I don't, th I, I think there is no soundtrack, you're right. I remember hearing that. But since everything is so flat, people are just, wait for it, wait, and then nothing happens. What do I do with all this? Ah, where is it going? So this is like a spoiler for every TV series you're watching, you're not gonna like the ending. That's how it goes, it's just, it's hard coded in, if it's three or four seasons, you'll be fine. So you might end. Exactly, you might enjoy the ending of Stranger Things, but Stranger Things have had an. I have no idea, but I'm not saying. And then the kid dies. Yeah, but it's like Stranger Things has another problem because it has been through time, but it's because of lateness in the in in, in doing it. But uh, yeah, you'll. It's it's encoded in our genetics. We have difficulties with keeping that tension and then when it's time to release it or if what is the baggage of tension that you've kept in and when it's time to release it how are you going to feel about it yes but for a serialized system shouldn't it be like the graph be like multiple like curves going like this because oftentimes like when you have a series like you know like three chapters like first book second book and each book has its own climax yeah. kind of not all the time but you're right it should be like more of an oscillated thing because you can't keep like that level. It's regulation. And if we're like if we're using TV series, there's conclusions to seasons. Everything goes up, then it goes down, but it can't be it can't go down to it, yeah, it, it can't go down here because it, it wants you to entertain the fact that you're gonna watch season two, season three. Now. And there's that's why there are a lot of um Season two is often the same. Like, there's a lot of archetypes around season two and a lot of archetypes around season seven, if I, if I remember correctly. Is, uh, season two is uh, the uh, reinventioning. So characters in season two have to, you start off with known basis, but you're reinventing yourself as a person. And season seven is the, um, what's it called? It's the, uh, uh, La Synthèse, where there are a lot of elements from season one, two, three that come back in season seven because you, you return to past experiences to see if you have learned from them. And season seven is that point where you're like, did I learn from, from that? Yes. I don't know if you're familiar with the Planet Kiss or a TV show like How 
Well, that's the thing, is that there are two types. Am I there? Yes, well, yeah, kind of. Okay, I'll go there right now. Serialized fiction means two things. The first one is a... The first one is... Uh, uh, serial fiction is a lot closer to what we believe, or what we call, we have this advantage because we have the French tradition behind us, le roman feuilleton, which is basically someone printing every week or month or so a chapter of a novel that ends eventually. So le roman feuilleton is very much that. It is, it stays this type of curve because it's not returning to its basis constantly. It's really building on it. So le roman feuilleton um, has, well, uh, Little Women is uh, roman feuilleton, uh, War and Peace by Tolstoy is uh, roman feuilleton, and also Three Musketeers was written in this, in this manner. So their novels now we consider them as being complete novels, but during the time they were serially published every week. So that's closer to what we have right now as a, like a serialized narrative podcasts, for example. Yeah, yeah, it would make uh, maybe, I don't know, maybe. Strict <laughs> I'll, I'll I'll digest that one and I'll be right back. Yes. That's where there's something different there. Is that? Yeah, monthly. You're right. A serialized monthly publication. You're right, but even in there, there are two distinctions in seriality. When we're when we're speaking of uh, comic books and even uh, roman graphic uh, in France, is that there's there is the the contained story where like uh, Preacher is 60 issues, it ends, but there is the Adventures of Superman, which has been going on for 80 years nonstop. Those are two different models of seriality. So that's why I'm starting off with the first one, which I absolutely agree with you, is a serialized monthly periodical culminating to an end. But there are no endings to Superman. Superman has been written constantly every month in multiple titles. As you know, there are more than one title of Superman per month for every month in the last, in the last 80 years. We have, I think, yeah, it's... Blah. There are, th like, uh, two years ago, I think, s last summer, maybe this one or the one before, was the thousandth Superman comic. It's just having that enormity of corpus, and that's the second type of seriality, which is a seriality, th that's why, like, the District 31 kind of threw me a curveball, because it's the, what we'll be uh, speaking of more around House MD, the, s the situation seriality. So, basically, all you need to know is that there's a doctor, he has his friend, he uh, hates his colleagues, but there's someone sick every week. And that type of seriality works outside of time. So like, this is very much present for serialized novels such as Notre Dame de Paris, but if you're reading a Superman issue, 
You can read whichever one you want at any time you want in the same manner that you can pick up any procedural uh, TV series. Like, you don't really care Criminal Minds season six, episode four. It's on, let's go. I just need to know, oh wait, that character isn't there anymore because he died. Okay, that's fine. It's little things, but it's a constant return to the initial situation. So it's not, but it's, it's not that type of curve, but, but that type of curve is very much present to keep the serialized public interested. That's where District 31 becomes interesting because there are minor storylines every day or it's not, since it's like every day District is pretty hard to, to deal with, but like there are little cases and then there, there's the overarching case, case. The overarching case is just there to keep you interested. The tiny cases are just there to keep you present, basically. And I'm not saying this in a reductive manner. I'm not saying that what they're doing is not refined or of interest. It's very well done. It's keeping two types of stories running simultaneously. One, to make sure that you're entertained in that 18 to 22 minutes. The other one, to make sure that you're entertained for the entire year that you're going to be watching that show. So that is also something that needs to be done in a very efficient manner. So that's why like, there are, you'll watch seasons of House where uh, he's closer to dying than usual. And then you're like, oh, that's season five where he has a penguin instead of the leg. But once in a while, you're just going to pick up the show and you're going to go, oh shit, it's the one with the penguin leg. It must be season six. But it doesn't, it's not as we're going back to Game of Thrones, throwing someone in the middle saying, Episode three, season two, good luck. Uh, who are these people? What the hell? That's another type of seriality. So this is why I really wanted to make the distinction between both of those. That's good? Okay. Roma Feuilleton is a lot more period periodicals. It comes in every time that you need it. Sometimes there are certain, you might read them. There are examples where you, obviously know that a chapter is there as what we call filler. So people are, you're, you're reading it and you're like, oh well, someone needed to write something this month. <laughs> this is great. It might be a, a diversity of point of view. It might be someone finally taking hold of that chapter. So you're, we've been following the adventures of this and that and then, oh, we're following him doing that. And then you'll just, for two chapters, sidetrack, come back to the main storyline. That's also like what we would call a palate cleanser for uh, fiction. Yes? So for the Roman Python, there is like a rise from the start, like it builds from the start, but do we expect a different ending like a fall? Yeah. Yeah, if I, there are no, there are not a lot of contemporary examples of this. That's why I like I shifted to podcasting because I feel like that's the only, like Radio Raman doesn't really exist. Literature Subscription doesn't really exist anymore. There are certain examples, but not much. So I think like that type of reading has changed. But if I go back to Trois Mousquetaires, I know that people were expecting it to end eventually, but they're just like, Conte de Monte Cristo is the same thing. There are a lot of chapters where he's just inserting, and then he tried uh, Kung Fu for six weeks. I'm like, okay, let's go. <laughs> All right. And when you read it now, like 200 years later, you're like, oh, well, that's the, that's the Kung Fu pass. Uh, all right, that was great. Uh, yeah. But you need to think, yeah. Uh, 
I speak of ninjas. But there's <laughs> it's a part of those conventions. Yes, sorry. Well, Lord of the Rings is not the Roman Phaeton because it, it hasn't been produced. It, uh, it hasn't been thought in that manner. Phaeton is really like every month we're adding a little part. Well, every Christmas we add a movie. <laughs> 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 it is, in that regard, it is. Um, Bond is serial in the regard that it constantly goes back to its initial state. Yeah. Yes. Exactly. They've done, they've done exactly the same thing with Superman. Is that there are changes, but they don't no. they don't stick. They like you will have like slight references to slight installment, but they're not uh, crucial to understanding what's going on in the story. Kind of like Easter egg for the fans. Kind of. I, I this is once again demonstration of my ignorance. I haven't watched the I I saw Casino Royale, but I haven't seen. The, the, the entire Daniel Craig thing. I saw Casino Royale when it came out, that's it. Yes, yes, very much so. I'm not a huge fan. Uh, <laughs> the, the Sean Connery ones are boring, it's amazing. You need to watch these films. Dr. No is so boring. Sorry. <laughs> no. Oh yeah, but they're amazing 60s films. Okay, uh, no. <laughs> okay, but James Bond, coming from that tradition of serialized fiction where James Bond, whatever happens, always bounces back to his his state outside of time. He returns to his initial situation. Whatever happens, there are no scars. In Daniel Craig, my understanding, if anyone wants to contradict it, there is, like those five films follow through. So there is like a, a breaking of the model in those films where they're, they're adding consequences to, uh, you remember when the guy with the diamonds in the face, he did in yeah. yours, and then you're like, ah, this hurts, two films later. I, d I have no idea. Like this is me just going out of here. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. The mangas are based on that type of, even to the point where, like I think where it becomes very modern is the ending. Like what the hell? When is, especially in the manga industry, the ending is dictated on the health of the mangaka. Is basically when is he going to die? Yeah. He's in One Piece. That's what's going on with One Piece. It's like, eventually he's going to die. We're just waiting. It's, wow, he's a, he's a strong one. He is shit. But they're all massively depressed and they're overworked and it's horrible. But it is in that serialized logic of constantly. And that's why, um, especially, like, I, I, I find it very interesting in um, copyright laws, how in, the, in North America, copyright laws are very much, if you draw Mickey Mouse, we're going to sue you. But in, in, like, uh, in Japan and in China, it's especially, it's more like allowed because they believe that it will um, orient people back to the original production. So fan fiction and fan productions in Asia is almost like a way of giving a break to the creator by saying it's fine, there's fan productions while you're breathing. My definition of fan fiction when I give these types of classes and I have to start off with like a hard boom is that fan fiction is only what, it's, what it calls itself. So you cannot, you cannot call something fan fiction that is not already saying that it is fan fiction. 
Because if you start saying, hey, uh, Paradise Lost by Milton is fan fiction of the Bible, it, it becomes like everything opens up. So it really has to be named as such. And that said, like, it'll bring certain things like Twilight is not fan fiction, but the original production that she transformed to make Twilight is. Like, I don't remember what the original name of that fan fiction was. Yeah, Fifty Shades is a Fifty Shades is a fan fiction of Twilight. Twilight is a fan fiction of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Just think about it. It's it's there. It's very much there. Uh, probably um, Jacob. Probably. Because she's, she's stuck in between two vampires, but obviously Angel and Edward have common characteristics. Where, but Spike is like an error in, pro no? No, I agree. But Spike wasn't even supposed to be in the series. He was just a cameo, and that's, that, there's a fluke in there. She does not. Who? Oh no, but yeah, but that's not, it's just, it's, it's inspiration. It, you're taking that triangle and you're going, no, 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 that's not, it's not an equation of, no, 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 no. It's just like, yeah, yeah, but that's, that's the author. Like she went, hey, Buffy would be great if it had like this really awkward thing. And then she went with it. And then someone else went, oh, this, this Twilight fan fiction would be great if there was like a millionaire with handcuffs. It would be, uh, and that's the part. That's like I will defend that thing to my death. I think it's great. Wait, what? I I will defend the right to fan fiction to my death. I think there are so. Oh no, whatever th whatever she did, whatever they did, I like. Well, that's it's not my thing. It has been the thing of a lot of people. I can't. I don't. I don't fiction shame anyone. That's fine. Not my thing. I'm, but it was a massive success. Let's not, I can't really. Uh, okay, so uh, to go back, yes, that's why I say like, it has to say was a fan fiction of, but you'll find it like, uh, going back to mangas, everything goes back to Dragon Ball. Like there are a lot of people that say that One Piece is very close to Dragon Ball and that uh, he started by drawing the characters of Dragon Ball in the situations of One Piece and then got a, became a better drawer and then thought up fruit and then went like, oh, I got a story here. It's like the little, that's why I love fan fiction. It's just, I feel that in writing and creating artistically, there are so many things that prevent people of, out of uh, guilt and shamans and fan fiction just gets rid of that. It's like, oh, write your thing on your side and, and That's and when it has to you have to claim it. If if you announce yourself as that is your artistic 
quest, you're fine. You're fine. That's like I, I firmly like, especially now in fiction, there are a lot of um, because fan fiction is being published a lot more. There are a lot of people that are that will do like their first drafts and get them better read and stuff, and then change the names and repackage them and then throw them to a, to a, a publishing house. But like there are um, what's it called after? Yeah, but it still exists. <laughs> she hates everything. It is. It is fan fiction. Like after is a novel about the uh, singers of One Direction. So she wrote like this entire thing of the uh, of the band, and then went. Oh, I'm just going to give them different names, and then she got it published. But everyone knows that it was originally it had after a fan fiction. You're like, ah, fair game. But you can't go back to Milton saying, "Were you doing Bible fan fiction, man?" He's like, "What the hell are you talking about?" Okay, I am not advancing quickly enough through this. <laughs> wow. Okay. Whew. Damn. Oh, we're done. We're done. Uh. Oof. Yeah, yeah, he's so great. Okay, um, I'm gonna go. Uh, shit, do I do this? Okay, damn, this is horrible. Okay, Edgar Allan Poe is considered the uh, creator of the detective novel. He started off with a thing called The Gold Bug, which is the first detective fiction. Although there are, like, we consider it to be the first detective fiction because the codes are very well present. Afterwards, he created uh, Auguste Spain, which is his uh, very famous character. Auguste Spain was present in three short stories. First of all, Double Meurtre sur la rue Morgue, um, Le Mystère de Marie Roger, et uh, The Pern. Why do I say them in French? <laughs> I studied them in French, sorry. The Murders of Rue Morgue, uh, Mystery of Marie Roger, and Purloined Letter. Those are the three basic stories around uh, Chevalier Dupin. Uh, I've spoken of Edgar Allan Poe in regards to his Gothic fiction. But this is where it become, there's like a form of convergence that will pay off later on in history and in the history of letters, is that he wrote these very gothic tales, notably Black Cat, Fall of the House of Usher, The Pit and the Pendulum, and uh, Telltale Heart that we've spoken about uh, earlier on. You know Edgar Allan Poe well enough. I think he's slid into the collective unconscious, notably through things such as the episode of Treehouse of Horror, <laughs> where... Uh, Lisa's rival? Yeah, there's a diorama presentation, and there's a girl that's better at her in fact in school and everything, and she makes a diorama of uh, the Telltale Heart. Okay. And oh, yeah, okay. Oof. She hides it under the floorboard, and, and she hears. Exactly. <laughs> Telltale Heart is the story of someone who kills someone else and then buries him under his house, but he is haunted by the undead presence under his, well, it's not undead. He is haunted by what he feels is the ghost of his victim. So he hears the heart beating under the floorboards and he goes insane around it. Uh, since we don't have a lot of time, I was supposed to read The Raven, but go watch this. It's a really good version. It's in Treehouse of Horror 2, I think. Uh, Telltale Heart, there you go. Poof, I'm, oh God, this is horrible. Uh, in, in, in the other techniques that Edgar Allan Poe presented that were reused later on and will be more important further on in the class, there is the first story that, he's pu that he published called M.S. in the Bottle, Message in a Bottle, written, uh, and he was paid $50 for it. But in the story, there is, uh, and I quote, the re it is the report of a traveler. Here, one who has a strange experience with the unusual and survives only long enough to write this journal, leaving it as a posthumous report of terrifying events. 
So this harkens back to what I was speaking about when we were talking of Frankenstein, how you have Frankenstein and H.G. Um, Wells' Island of Dr. Moreau. You have characters that are only there to tell the story. So by them being there saying, I heard this story, there's like a line of fiction that is created to make you believe the story underneath. You have someone who you trust, the reliable narrator or unreliable narrator, who tells you a story and you're like, oh, that story is closer to my reality because I have someone who's explaining it to me. In the case of Poe, adding this little piece of, of proximity with the reader was also a way to connect directly with horror because that character is there to tell you the story of how they have been taken by supernatural forces. This will be used later on. But it's very present in classical literature, which makes me think that it worked a lot. It's such a, a present, it's such, I won't say omnipresent, but it's, it's very present in classical literature of having a character present something that that type of connection with fiction seems to have paid off or else it would have been, it wouldn't not have been, it would not have been used as much. What is that called, that reliable? The uh, reliable or unreliable narrator. So reliable when you believe what he says, unreliable when there are contradictions within what they're saying that um, will, but th that's not the character. I'll find that framing device. I'll find the name of the character that comes in and says, I will tell you a story. That's not, it's not the reliable, unreliable narrator, although there are aspects of it. Yes? Can it be argued that like any first person narrator is unreliable? Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. But it's, <laughs> Do you, it, that becomes your responsibility. Do you trust him or not? It's the reader. It's completely like, that's, that's your thing. If there is a con contradiction in the text, do you believe that it's a fault or a cover-up? That, that becomes two different readings. So it's super fun. Double whammy. Boom, 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 boom. Okay, so there's the idea of, as I said, and it's obviously one of my, my peeves, fiction passing as reality. Uh, Poe. So this is how uh, Bloom describes how Poe would uh, pull in people into the horror of his stories, where he says that uh, in the stories of this sort, the reader begins by identifying with the narrator, a narrator, assuming him or her to be the author's surrogate. But as the plot develops, the reader begins to realize that the speaker is not merely someone with a story to tell, but a character deeply involved in the tale and with his or her own biased interpretation of the events. The literary strategy creates an interesting double vision, the perception of the speaker and the evolving awareness of the reader. Bringing back to modern terms, um, in a lot of serialized fiction, the, there is a, a placeholder character. So I'm, the one that I always use is Jack and Lost, where the main character of Lost is someone that no one cares for at all. Mm -hmm. And people have e expressed anger towards that, but I feel like Jack is, Completing, completing his function perfectly. Because he is no one, everyone sees the story through his eyes. By being as vanilla as possible, and by being implicated in all, all the stories, he's always there to bring some jet fuel and stuff like that, you are following the story through his eyes. And there's, a, there's no point in Lost where there's a friction with Jack. You're always looking at the story through his eyes, and he never does something that goes, whoa, 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 I don't want to, I don't want to, watch the story through that, the, that guy's eyes. You have to keep that 
figure blank and morally irreproachable because you're not pulling the person away. I feel like, um, to get back to the house, I feel like Watson, I can't remember his name. John, just his, like, the, 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 the no, in, in house, there's house that's Sherlock and his best friend. Wilson? Yeah. Is, is he Wilson? Yeah. Okay, well, yeah, but it's not, yeah. Well, Wilson, Watson, Wilson is very much that. He's a character that not much happens. There are certain little things, but you're, you're supposed to look at house like he looks at house. He becomes like the circuit for that character. Yes. You don't have to, but it's a literary device that works. Okay. You don't have to. You can tell the story of someone that is extraordinary, but having that anchor, that, that effective anchor within the story, saying, like, I associate with that character, and that character was, was crafted for that cause, is something that's very uh, efficient. It works very well. But in Game of Thrones, there are no characters that you're watching the TV series through. You're not looking through the eyes of anyone. You will once in a while say, that character is really cool, but there are no placeholder characters that are really. Yeah, you cannot give them characteristics that would contradict the person that is watching. That's why he has to stay. I say he because it's more often than not guys, but he has to stay as blank possible so that you can, even like, exactly, even in his decisions, he will, that character will take the democratic decisions, will yeah. take the, this is what most of the people would, socially acceptable. exactly, or socially predictable. Yeah. That's very much present. And I'm pulling a lot of, I will like show my cards earlier on because I realized that uh, <laughs> running out of time. A lot of serialized fictions are codes that you understand through television. That's why I'm using a lot of those examples. Basically, I was supposed to build up the class in the end to say, because this is how TV is written. There you go. <laughs> TV has been written this way for 150 years. That's it. So I'm going to advance that part of the course by saying everything I'll be saying about Sherlock, everything I've been saying about Poe, applies to how we tell stories in this modern content, modern uh, environment, climate. Uh, and this is also, okay, I'm going to stop right after this. A lot of accusations, you'll, you'll hear a lot of this, uh, especially coming from literati, people who believe that art should be art and stuff. Um, there are accusations to the fact that Poe is uh, not a great writer. And in the end, they're like, oh, you know, it's kind of shabby. And if you take this, uh, this poem, it's super tacky and whatever. That happens for everyone. There are, there obviously are no authors that everyone admire equally. But Bloom had a really interesting way of saying that Poe, the strength of Poe is not present in his uh, wordsmithing, not how he would construct, but the stories that he was telling. And the stories that he were telling were so fundamental that he equated them with myths. And in myth, it's not, uh, it, it's, there's no matter because what we prefer is to have them uh, told in our own words. So that's why there are many stories of Hercules, because everyone in Greece had Hercules, but everyone was kind of telling a different story of Hercules. And eventually, when people started putting those myths down on paper, emerged one Hercules that was a composite of all those stories. 
But what we like with myths is taking them for ourselves and telling our own stories with those characters. In the end, there might be like a, a melting pot and we get to the point where we have that one character. But the myth is something that is a story that is a collective told through the individual. So we take a story and by you, um, by passing that story through your own experience, you will be telling it in a different manner, but you will be telling it in a manner that speaks of yourself more than of the story, if that makes sense. So that's what uh, Bloom says is the immense strength around Poe. And I'm going to skip this, but there was a, there's a huge rivalry in how the United States perceives itself. On one side, having uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson and the transcendentalists, social responsibility and being upright citizen and the macabre and the destructive pulse that is present in Edgar Allan Poe. Those two guys were really on uh, opposing sides one another and even during that time people would understand culture and understand life more in the Emersonian perspective or more on Poe's side. So if you're ever interested you could look at that. Uh, yeah, let's go. Let's go for a break. I'll give you uh, 20 minutes, and uh, everything's okay. Cool. You guys are great. Sorry, um, Jean-Michel here. Let me be absolutely honest with you because I could have skipped over it, but I thought might as well uh, try it again. There uh, was a problem when I started. I started class back up after the break. I completely forgot to um, press record on the recorder. I had paused it uh, during the break so that most of the conversations weren't recorded. I forgot to start it off again. So there's about like half an hour that's missing here. Um, I'm going to re-record it in a pretty awkward manner because I'm not uh, back in context. So I have no idea how uh, the information was distributed in, during uh, Tuesday's class, but we're Friday. I feel like you deserve to have this part since it's one of the the important parts of this class. So, okay, uh, this is me recording on Friday the uh, part that was not recorded uh, during uh, the uh, Tuesday class. So uh, we're back from break. Uh, we've just uh, spoken about Poe. I'm going to embark on Dickens. I remember during the Tuesday class that I, have, I had misquoted my own uh, notes in a transcription saying that Dickens had invented the novel and someone in class asked me what that meant and I agreed in the fact that it made absolutely no sense. Dickens actually is credited with reinventing the novel and he reinvented the novel notably through the idea of seriality, the fact that he is one of the precursors of the installments, the monthly chapters of a story when uh, in 1836 he published The Pickwick Papers, which was his first uh, famous and, and very popular novel and it was published monthly in, in a paper. It's um, one of the, the shining beacons of serial literature. By um, publishing Pick, uh, Pickwick papers, Dickens also invented and was very, um, very good with uh, the cliffhanger. If, uh, for everyone that knows cliffhangers and how we use them right now, Charles Dickens invented that technique notably um, by the use of having these massive events happen right before a chapter break. So to keep uh, his audience on their toes and expecting and waiting for the next um, installment. So that's pretty much where the cliffhanger was invented and it was invented 
as a as a mercantile thing, as a, a thing that keeps people subscribed, keeps people buying those papers because they want to see the continuation of the adventure. Dickens, uh, as I said, invented it, perfected it also. It was very well executed and he was very um, popular in keeping his readers uh, satisfied and anticipating. So there's there's something very important here around 1836 and uh, Charles Dickens's arrival on the on the serial literature and novel scene on this on that side in France there was also Eugène Sue around uh, 1841 1842 he published a, a very important series called Les Mystères de Paris Les Mystères de Paris becomes a very um, uh, popular example in France of these um, of uh, what they call roman feuilleton so uh, serial literature Les Mystères de Paris is so popular in France that it uh, inspires uh, the mysteries of London or the mysteries of several other cities. A lot of city, city papers decide to copy Eugène Sue's idea and uh, apply it to their own territories. And this brings up a, a type of... Les Mystères de Paris is very much a, a crime novel. So the idea of urban crime starts being very popular around Eugène Sue's Mystère de Paris and, and, the, uh, the, and his influences. So Eugène Sue, as I said, got very popular, influenced literature, but also influenced other writers. He notably influenced Alexandre Dumas, who started writing Trois Mousquetaires as a uh, serial novel also. And then that influence uh, is being felt all the way to uh, 1859 in Edinburgh, where Sir Ar Arthur Conan Doyle is born so he's born in the um, I'd say like the, the the massively popular era of serial fiction he obviously reads uh, some of these and um, starting off as a novelist not as being a serial writer in um, uh, 1887 Sir Arthur Conan Doyle now now sir not sir at that moment writes uh, a study in Scarlet Study in Scarlet is a novel, is the first, pre, the first appearance of Sherlock Holmes as a character, and the novel is quite a success, so he ends up being hired by the Strand magazine. And in Strand magazine, he publishes the first wave of Sherlock Holmes short stories in between 1891 and 1893. Those are in total, um, I think, something like 24 short stories. And... Uh, Conan Doyle becomes an immediate and absolute success. It's immense how, like, in his um, 56 stories total, in, uh, there's a hiatus in between, The Strand magazine becomes immensely popular, Arthur Conan Doyle becomes immensely popular, immensely influential in literary cycles, and becomes some sort of a literary superstar. Very much uh, adored, up to the point where he uh, will end up uh, running for political office, will have failed twice, and ends up uh, his life as a um, as a spiritualist. So he becomes very interested in the supernatural um, manifestations and phenomenons. A lot of people have thought about how starting off in writing uh, urban crime and ending up in spirituality uh, is can be complementary, but also contradictory. So as I was saying, Sherlock is. Um, 56 uh, untold stories the the untold story is actually a way of adding a form of intrigue by saying these stories are untold you are presented with uh, exclusivity in what is happening on 
uh, in the streets of London. There's something very um, clandestine about this. He, uh, he writes for a long period of time. In the end, uh, all the stories are edited and published around 1927. But uh, what's very interesting in how Sherlock Holmes wrote is that he was writing around those years. Um, but most of the stories are set in the end of the Victorian era and the beginning of the Edwardian era. So most Sherlock Holmes stories are, um, are being held in between 1881 and 1904. There was a very, very interesting conversation in class about how this coincides with the presence of Jack the Ripper in 1888 in the streets of London and how that, that story, how that serial killer has probably augmented uh, anxieties around urban backgrounds and how those anxieties are exploited through Conan Doyle's short stories. But after a, a short period, after like two years of writing Sherlock Holmes, Arthur Conan Doyle expresses some sort of, um, well, he kind of becomes bored of writing the character. So in uh, 1891, even though he was still writing at that moment, he wrote a letter to his mother saying, and I quote, I, I think of slaying Holmes and winding him up for good and all. He takes my mind from better things. So he was already, he was already considering that writing Sherlock Holmes every month was something um, tedious, so he was uh, considering killing him off, and his mother responded, uh, you won't, you can't, you mustn't. And this is, I, I, that's why there's the, the subtitle to this class, Conan Doyle's mother, it's because this cry not only comes from Conan Doyle's mother, I think it's, it's fairly amusing to see that even the mother of the creator says you cannot kill this character, but it's also like the general reaction around the, uh, the potential killing of Sherlock Holmes. He was so popular at the time that people have, will implore Sherlock, uh, Arthur Conan Doyle to not kill the character. But there's a point where he really gets fed up. So in December 1893, he decides to um, allow more time to writing historical novels. He writes the final problem in which Sherlock Holmes meets the Napoleon of crime, Dr. Moriarty, and they fight off uh, with fisticuffs on the side of a waterfall in Germany, and they both fall off the Reichenbach Falls. So this becomes like the, the moment where uh, Sherlock was killed, but it's also, it starts off what they call the Great Hiatus. And the Great Hiatus is a, a period of 10 years where Conan Doyle absolutely stops everything. Um, it's, oddly enough, it's 10 years in, in our time, but it's three years in Sherlock Holmes' time. So in between Final Problem and Empty House, um, Sherlock is presumably dead. That's basically what we think. But uh, he will obviously return, and he returns for um, not a lot of reasons, basically. He returns for one very obvious reasons, and he describes it in this manner. And I quote, if I had killed a real man, I could not have received more vindicative letters than those which poured in upon me. So people like Conan Doyle's mother were outraged by the fact that he killed uh, Sherlock Holmes. Or he didn't kill him, but he, uh, he suspended him, if we can say, during that great hiatus. During those 10 years, a lot of people started writing pastiches. People were writing what we would currently call fan fiction of the character. Uh, notably, one of his good friends, one of Conan Doyle's good friends, G.M. Barry, who everyone knows here as the author of Peter Pan, 
he wrote a pastiche called The Adventures of the Two Collaborators and wrote it as a gift to Conan Doyle. Uh, kind of in a cheeky way of saying this character can still be alive and you really don't have to write him. And a lot of people have taken that, um, that hint and have written. There has been a lot of quote-unquote fan fiction around the Sherlockian character. Like currently there is immense amounts of fan fiction, obviously because of the BBC television series. But in between 1893 and 1993 there was still a lot. There's like a hundred years of unofficial fan fiction around this character. Oddly enough, like he, as I was saying, um, Conan Doyle did not want to write the character, but he had he had to pile the ten years of letters of pe of people imploring him to keep writing Sherlock Holmes. And after ten years, what uh, what he tried is he went back to Strand. Well, Strand was pursuing him, obviously, and other um, publishing houses were pursuing him because they wanted him to get back to his success. And Conan Doyle would just up the ante in terms of salary constantly. He would just ask for more money, ask for more money, ask for more money until eventually they gave him a number that he could not ignore anymore. And he became the best paid author of his time because of that game of cat and mouse. And in 1901, being so rich around this character, he wrote The Hound of the Baskervilles, which is the one of the great classic novels of Sherlock Holmes. I know uh, you uh, read Study in Emerald, which resembles a lot Study in Scarlet. Neil Gaiman goes towards those influences and aligns them with things that he learned through Lovecraft. But Hound of the Baskervilles is the classic Sherlock Holmes novel, if I remember correctly, from my youth. There's, um, the, during, this is, this is the part that's really fascinating around Sher the Sherlock mythology or Sherlock, like, reception, how the public has taken Sherlock, is the fact that, um, Sherlock, for certain people, were, people started treating Sherlock as real as true. So they started saying that it's not fiction, Sherlock Holmes is history. And by saying that, um, they started admitting the fact that they, um, they believed in this character. So this might align itself with how we feel about conspiracies right now, but it's not really that. I feel like there's a game present through all this of these um, people just, just one-upping and upping the ante around the idea of fiction. And, and playing in with the idea of the great hiatus. I'm not too comfortable with this thing of saying that there is a grand delusion around the character and that people have a difficulty in distinguishing in between reality and fiction. Although I know that is something that happens sometimes, I wouldn't be up to saying that uh, people who read Sherlock uh, fiction in general couldn't distinguish in between uh, truth and, uh, and fiction. But there was this type of reaction to it where uh, people, and this is still the case, since 1897, Sherlock has been receiving hundreds and hundreds of letters. Even um, Richard Lancelin Green edited a collection of these letters called Letters to Sherlock Holmes, published in 1985, where people would write to 221B Baker Street asking for autographs, asking for greeting cards, um, invites for conferences saying, oh, Sherlock, you seem to be very smart. Maybe you'd like to speak uh, in our assembly. People asking them to celebrate their weddings. Uh, some people obviously 
send in immense details about situations asking Sherlock to um, take care of this crime or to, to, to solve it. And one of the interesting things right here is people are writing letters to Sherlock saying, Dear Sherlock Holmes, uh, I'm getting married. It would be great if you would be the one that, that celebrates this marriage. But um, all those letters end up at 221B Baker Street, which is the address where Sherlock and um, uh, Watson reside in the fiction. The thing with 221B Baker Street is that it doesn't exist. It's not an address that exists in London. In um, like how um, urbanism functions in London is not the same way as how it functions uh, in Quebec or in Canada. The B is not like a second annex or it's not like an apartment that was or a house that was split in two. B means second floor. So people are looking for 221 Baker Street and are imagining that if you get to the second floor, you'll, you'll get to Sherlock. But 221 Baker Street is uh, was, because it's no longer the case, was the headquarters for the Abbey National Building Society. So uh, since 1887, 1897, sorry, where the, the Abbey National Building Society was located on that, in that address, as I said, they were receiving the letters. It's the society that every day, week, month would be flooded with letters in regards to Sherlock Holmes. And it became such an, uh, an important thing that the Abbey National Building Society even created a job. There's a, there's a, there is someone who is paid by that society to answer all the letters. The secretary of the, uh, of the society does like answers every week and this for the past 125 years. And it's something that is taken very seriously, even though, as I was saying, uh, the Abbey National Building Society is no longer on Baker Street, but they're still holding on to that responsibility and holding on to the idea of having these people consider Sherlock as being uh, part of truth and not part of fiction. One of the very important uh, groups of these people are the Baker Street Irregulars. The Baker Street Irregulars believe in some sorts, or as I say, are maybe playing towards the idea that Sherlock actually exists. He exists up to the point where they no longer call Arthur Conan Doyle um, the author. They call him the literary agent. So by calling him in this manner, they're not saying that, uh, that Sherlock was invented. They're saying that texts from Sherlock were, were given to us through Arthur Conan Doyle's writing. So it's not the writer, it's the agent, the agent who brings us these things. And this is a tradition that started off around 1911. Well, it's actually, it's the essay, Robert Knox's 1911 essay, Studies in the Literature of Sherlock Holmes, also amplified this idea of having a blurring in between the lines of fiction and fact, because he started, um, in the studies of uh, literature of Sherlock Holmes, he started a trend in speaking of Sherlock, notably through biblical terms. So he stopped using like text or things of the sort and started using canon. And he stopped using like um, novels and started using terms like sacred writings. And this is where I, I like to nuance a little the fact on maybe people are delusional and feel that Sherlock Holmes is real, or maybe people are just playing a grand uh, game with fiction by saying, well, look, let's take, let's take the Bible, and this is completely a part of my own beliefs here, but let's take the Bible, and if, we, if for certain people we consider the Bible fiction, something that was written by mortals but has been adopted as a way of living, as a way of living correctly, 
in the hopes of maybe receiving a reward in the afterlife. Well, what if what if we do the same operation with something that we obviously obviously know is fiction? And it, this might sound kooky or crazy of having people just going, okay, we're going to apply um, Bible scholarship to like that that rigor. We're going to apply it to Sherlock Holmes. But it's not that crazy, especially when we start thinking about people who presented themselves as Jedi in uh, in Europe during a couple of uh, a couple of decades, like people saying not Catholic, not Buddhist, Jedi. There is always a type of play with fiction and reality, and it's not something that we can easily disregard because it's from time past. It is something that is still very much active right now. People who decide to accept fiction as their, um, their, 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 the, the main tool of understanding their reality or their contemporary, contemporary reality. Added to that, some people also pushed on by writing biographies on Sherlock Holmes. So not even taking fictional, like the, the fictional text as enough to explain the history of the character, but even though, but amplifying it by writing an actual biography, saying he was there, he was born there, he did that, and completing the entire uh, schematics around the, the character. And those schematics are, are basically completed through the character of Watson, because Watson, as being his second hand, is constantly looking towards Sherlock and all uh, constantly commentating. So even though he will observe, he will also ask ask questions which will bring certain tidbits of information around the character and then everyone uses their own uh, personal detective skills to write the biography of Sherlock. All this added on by, uh, by Watson. Watson is also a really interesting character here because um, as I said we are constantly seeing the story through Watson's eyes. We are understanding Sherlock through how Watson is writing the stories, because all the stories are written th uh, by uh, Watson's pen, but it's we do not have access to Sherlock's mind. We have access to to um, Watson's mind, and Watson's understanding, and how he's quizzical, and how he in interrogates, and how he navigates this um, above average intelligence that is Sherlock Holmes. But there's also demultiplications of types of Watsons that has been done through time and through fiction. There's the stoic, ex-military, uh, rigorous Watson that we've, that we've read that's very present in the stories, but then you'll have like the bumbling, just a little goofy Watson character uh, that doesn't like, will tip over vases, will, will be like the, the comic relief to Sherlock. And uh, there's, there are, in that regard, a type of uh, multiplication of types of Watsons, even though there's only one Sherlock. And the multiplication goes on, where, uh, up to the point where there is um, Lucy Liu plays Watson in elementary, and in the BBC's Sherlock, Watson is kind of this, like he's uh, an in-between, in, in between like the stoic ex-military, uh, in between sometimes bumbling, there's also the, um, the fact that he is married, and he is like the domestic man, but fan fiction in Sherlock fandom has also brought on uh, a homoerotic tension in between the characters. So there are many Watsons, but only one Sherlock. Sherlock is, is pretty complete as a character, and he's pretty stable. He stays the archetype that he needs to be. It's characters around him that kind of change. 
Um, I think uh, we're up to the point where I've, I've started recording, so we're fine. I was speaking of The Son of Tarzan, which is an Edgar Rice Burroughs story in which Tarzan appears, uh, sorry, in which uh, Sherlock Holmes appears mentioned in the story. And then it kind of opens up this can of worm of saying Tarzan exists in one uh, fiction, Sherlock exists in another world of fiction, but somehow they know each other. So I'm going to throw back uh, to uh, Jean-Michel in... Uh, <laughs> In the past, in Tuesday, uh, in hoping that this, this was not too uh, uh, disconcerting, or if you ever have questions, you can send them over to me. Have a great break and uh, take it away. So what happened is basically there was a moment where Tarzan and Sherlock meet and then everyone goes, okay, if those guys know each other, then who else knows each other? Philip Jose Farmer started writing these stories and put thing in, put them, putting them all in a cycle called the River World Cycle and explaining this as the W-H-O-L, whole Newton universe, by saying that every character in fiction coexists. So because they exist in fiction, they are outside of time, and since they are outside of time, they have ways of meeting, and that certain characters have met historically. This is also very important to bring upon stuff like Sherlock Holmes versus Jack the Ripper, because obviously, historically, these characters existed in the same fictional London. Well, we'd have to write that story. The whole Newton universe brings us to the point where we can draw a line between Holmes and uh, Lovecraft. So uh, Robert E. Howard and um, uh, Edgar Rice Burroughs, all of these authors were writing serialized fiction, science fiction, fantasy, and horror. But since they were all published in the same books, basically, a lot of people were already skewing those stories as uh, belonging together. And then when Philip so Ho uh, Jose Farmer did the whole Newton, it kind of blew up and then it brought on stuff that we have like in modernity, uh, such as uh, Cabin in the Woods, the, the horror film where all the creatures exist. Well, that's the opening of those types of floodgates. So H.P. Lovecraft is, um, I love this picture. I love this picture because he always looks like he's hiding a bird in his mouth. <laughs> like, look at it. It really looks like he's trying to hold a bird in his mouth or an egg. I don't know. I'm going to go around that one. <laughs> He was very much uh, prejudiced. It was, uh, well, prejudiced. He was full-blown racist. <laughs> full-blown racist to the point, and it's more than anything else or something intriguing about Lovecraft's racism is that it's, uh, it is the motor of most of his fiction. And it's not the motor of, yes, there is a uh, there, but it's, okay. He wrote this shit, okay? This is that guy. Every time you see like a plush of that face, it's him. The thing is that Lovecraft was so immensely racist that he was afraid of everything that was not him, but deathly afraid to the point where he, he contorsed everyone that was not him into creatures. So he was afraid of black people, so he, he made like ex overt black representation in his creatures. It's mostly like he is racist, but he's very much afraid of everything he and he dealt with it i had a student last semester 
who said that he dealt with it through his fiction, and that's why later in his age, like close to his death, he was very much apologizing about what he did, especially towards anti-Semitism. But like, I have no idea. This is like total bi biography. But there is a, a, an immense uh, racial insensitivity in H.P. Lovecraft in understanding his creatures. But what he, had, what he did with these types of, of bibit, uh, Cthulhu being one, <laughs> is that uh, he wrote what he called like the, 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 old, the Great Old One Saga. So basically it's an understanding of evil that surpasses our understanding of evil. The characters in H.P. Lovecraft um, are, and this, th this is why it connects to the detective story, is that 90% of H.P. Lovecraft stories are about some guy who finds a book, and in the book there's one word that he doesn't understand, so he goes and does a little research, finds that word, goes, oh wait, that word is connected to this type of text, goes and reads this text, then the text brings him to a library that he finds underground and it's a little damp, and there are three guys with like uh, cloths on them, and then he, f they f he meets a cult, and that cult is in adoration of a fish god from the cosmos. And then <laughs> someone says, fish god from the cosmos, and then your protagonist goes bonkers mad and throws himself off, like, into, uh, repeatedly into a wall. That is Lovecraft's <laughs> story. It's the, the cosmic it, it's cosmic horror, but it's also the counterbalancing of what we were speaking of in Sherlock Holmes. Sherlock Holmes is, the, um, is liberation through knowledge and through logic. In H.P. Lovecraft, it's damnation through knowledge because you will, you will search, you will go through academia, and you will eventually unlock something that blows your mind, like unfolds your mind, literally. It's just people having access to a form of evil that is so grandiose that it, does even, it doesn't even know that humanity exists. So that's why I say like the great old ones doesn't even, villains will think of their acts and their consequences. They have no consideration for humanity. It's a cosmic form of horror. H.P. Lovecraft wrote a story called The Color Out of Space and the bad guy is a variation in between purple and green. It's a color and the color have you seen that uh, film with Nicolas Cage? It's insane. Nicolas Cage goes crazy by looking at flowers. It's fun. <laughs> it's super fun. But it's that. It's the color out of space is a meteor, and it's the. And it was it was uh, directed by a uh, a crazy sorcerer, and I'm not saying like just he's a he's a crazy sorcerer. <laughs> Richard Stanley. Uh, he uh, is the guy who was supposed to. This is a uh, uh, parenthesis. It's the guy who was supposed to direct H.G. Uh, Wells' uh, Island of Dr. Moreau but he got fired midway because Marlon Brando was angry with him. So instead of taking the plane and leaving the, uh, the, the set, the island where they were shooting, he went further into the bushes and lived for three weeks in a bath. And there are stunt people that would bring him costumes. So he would, for three weeks, he would uh, sleep in a bath and put on an animal costume and become an extra in the film he was just fired from. <laughs> It's, no, he's crazy, but he's absolutely crazy. He's <laughs> like, and, and this is, like, there's a, um, uh, what happened with H.P. Lovecraft following his works is uh, people considered it as pulp fiction, serialized fiction. It stays in books, it's fine. But there was one guy called Auguste Derlet 
who founded Arkham House, he basically, his logic is, is pretty flawless. He went, we're going to treat Lovecraft as the most important thing that was ever written until people start believing us. And Arkham House did that. They, they just went on publishing and writing about Lovecraft novels and his mythos until academia caught up and went, wait, there must be something here. And that it's, it's pretty much the same thing, but in a different dynamic of what was done with Sherlock, is that people taking that text very seriously. While, why I say Richard Stanley is insane is he actually believes that you can use, you can channel Lovecraftian gods in occult practices. <laughs> and he's done it a couple of times. There are a couple of documentaries about him on that. Uh, he also signs the preface to a book called Le Pseudonomicon, which is a, 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 a conversation in between Phil Hines' Chaos Magic and H.P. Lovecraft's Neonomicon, uh, sorry, Neonomicon, sorry. Uh, huh? Necro, but Neonomicon is an Alan Moore story about H.P. Lovecraft that is pretty awesome. But the Necronomicon in, cult in popular culture, every time you see the book that is bound in flesh and written in blood, you know, like that book that has a face and if you put your hand on it, it bites. It, it's in uh, Evil Dead. There are also a lot of films called Necronomicon. It's also very much present in um, Cabin in the Woods. That book, the damned book, that comes from H.P. Lovecraft also. So... Yeah, uh, how is time? Time is fleeting. Holy, okay. So I'm going to connect um, threads here where originally when I was speaking of Poe's narrators of being someone who have experienced supernatural elements and have been uh, victims of it, that is recuperated in Lovecraft to characters who acquire knowledge until they go insane and they kill themselves. So he takes that from Poe and in, uh, in the Sherlockian tradition, he takes this idea of intellectualism and anti-intellectualism also. The fact that too much knowledge is a dangerous thing in Lovecraft. So all these elements, plus they're all kind of serial fiction, they combine to themselves. Indiana Jones. Crystal Skull Alien, you're right, yeah, yeah. Is it, is it very Lovecraftian? Oh yeah, you're right. Someone dies because they're too much. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but they're no, that's in the uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. It's when he opens the ark, he melts and then his eyes explode. <laughs> the Nazi. No, the Last Crusade. He uh, <laughs> he withers down because he drinks from the wrong callus. Right. Damn, I still remember my Indiana Jones. <laughs> like yeah, that was a that was a yeah. So <laughs> Uh, so there's a lot in, in Lovecraft, there's very much that the, the quest to be able to find a horror that surpasses our understanding, that surpasses every human being's understanding. And in that cosmic thing, we are um, reduced to uh, nothing, basically. Like humanity does not count at all. It's not even like a, a worm or a ant thing. It's, uh, it's, it's like reverse Carl Sagan, like how Carl Sagan is able to make everything beautiful with the stars. Lovecraft did quite the contrary. Yes? Well, I guess that's kind of the brilliance of Lovecraftian horror is that it's something, it describes something that's beyond our understanding. So everyone is kind of forced to think like, what would I not be able to understand? Yeah. That's the form that this horror takes. So it can literally be anything. Yeah, and 
if we're still uh, uh, going towards logic, Sherlock Holmes functions with very um, known parameters of logic, where Lovecraft is a lot in uh, what they call non-logic, non-Euclidean, which I cannot explain. Sorry, like non-Euclidean knowledge uh, or logic seems to be something that um, is constantly in transformation. So it happens in stories of Lovecraft where you will be in a room and if you get just the right angle, there's a, uh, a portal that appears, like there's a wall that's not really there and it's not really like hidden stuff, it's just sacred geometry or occult geometry where you'll get exactly the right angle or uh, an impossible angle. Knowledge that surpasses the brain's understanding, like saying it's there, but since you are so puny, since you are so limited in your decoding of the environment, this type of angle is too powerful for your mind. That's the type of thing that Lovecraft loves to add in. So you're right, there is no logic behind it. How could you be afraid of a color? But that story is so convincing of that color is terrifying. So, but you kind of, what color would be terrifying? Exactly. You create it for yourself. Exactly, and you, you end up... Aucune nouvelle de Lovecraft n'est close sur elle-même. Chacune d'entre elles est un morceau de peur ouvert et qui hurle. That's the best way of describing what the hell is going on there. And it's also this type of... Oh, yes, I could do this here. There's also, in serial fiction, another way of treating the understanding of the elements within them. It's less the case when we're talking of serial fiction as, an, as a, a total. Like if we're using Comte de Monte Cristo, for example, it doesn't work as well. But if we're using stuff like James Bond or we're using stuff like Superman, there is um, an understanding that the piece functions for the whole. So one story of Sherlock Holmes is not great by itself. But if you measure it to another one, and you measure it to a third one, and you measure it to an entire year where he wrote, it becomes very interesting, and it, that's where you get its importance, is in its, its uh, connection with the entirety of it. This is really the case with Lovecraft. You'll read one Lovecraft story, and you'll go, all right, I kind of get it. Is this what happens all the time? And someone next to you will say, yes, it happens all the time. You have to read them all because they become these units that flesh out the idea of Lovecraftian horror. So I'll go back to James Bond. If you're watching one of the uh, 23 films now, m more, I think there's like third. Like yeah, we're past 23. Yeah. How was the movie? It was pretty good for James Bond. It's one of the best James Bonds. Uh, the James Bond before was better. The James Bond as a unit doesn't really count. It counts as an entirety. That's what I say, like Fast and Furious 8 is the best Fast and Furious. It's so great. There's a moment where they have like wires and a, a, a bank. It's like Fast and Furious 8 is the best Fast and Furious because you measure it to Tokyo Drift and you're like, Tokyo Drift was better than two, but it's a piece for the whole. In serial fiction, in Holmes, in Lovecraft, the pieces count less than what they are able to construct in their entirety. And that functions a lot in fantasy science fiction because you're also doing a process that they call world building. So every little piece is there to flesh out the world in which everything exists. 
I have not a lot of time. I'm just going to go really, uh, well, there you go. I've already spoken about this difference in variation in television. So the one that is a continuous serial and the one that is a redundant serial. Episodic. Episodic, we can say. Ending up with Everything Bad is Good for You by Stephen Johnson. I really I love this book, and it helps me a lot when I'm trying to teach these types of things. He starts off with the premise that we consider pop culture as being like the junk food of intellect and that it's just easy fodder and stuff of the sort. But in his preface, he, uh, he goes like, okay, let's, let's try looking at it in a smarter angle. Let's try seeing what is constructive around these ideas. And in Everything Bad that is Good for You, he uh, pulls out three main aspects that is very present in serialized fiction, but very present in fiction in general as you consume it, maybe television or others. It's very, like even, well, we'll see. He starts off with the idea of in serial fiction, there is multiple threading that is operated. So one of the parts of the cognitive work comes from following multiple threads, keeping often densely interwoven plot lines distinct in your head as you watch. So this would be bringing back the case of District 31, following what is happening with the police precinct while you're following what is happening with the star detective's love life, while you're following what is happening with the latest criminal, while you're following what is happening with that guy who freaked out and uh, uh, flipped his desk over and quit. Like you have multiple stories in a serial way that come back and you have to keep all of these stories in mind. So even though we can, or there's a lot of people that serve these arguments about popular culture, that it's redundant, simple, it comes back. You need to keep in mind that there are a lot of multiple threadings. Game of Thrones is a good example. You need to have an understanding of where each character is in, like geographically and morally at every moment. So that is uh, an undertaking. It's something that is not done in conventional storytelling. The second one, oh yeah, well, uh, Johnson adds where he says, just look at television in the 60s, in the 50s. He takes gra Dragnet, says, start the episode. The uh, detective picks up the phone. Oh no, we have this case. Close, like, uh, puts the phone down, does his investigation, it's done. Then you'll go in the 70s with Starsky and Hutch. Starts off, Starsky is um, in a bar, he's drinking, and uh, he throws a bottle of beer. I have no idea. He throws a bottle of beer uh, out of frame. The phone rings, the police sergeant says, we have a case. And he goes, and he does his case. And then it cuts to the end with the guy receiving, a guy receiving a, a beer bottle on the side of the head. So you have two stories here. You have what Starsky does in his free time and what he does when he's a detective. <laughs> and then Johnson goes on and goes, look, uh, looks at episodes of Hill Street Blues with all of these characters and ends up looking at The Sopranos with all of these characters saying there's a complexity in the models. You need to keep a lot more information in your mind when you're watching these types of productions. Same thing when you're uh, reading serial literature. You have to keep a lot more details and a lot more plot uh, threads active to be able to connect all the pieces, things that you don't really do in a, in a standard piece of writing. The other one is... Well, it would, yeah, exactly. It would be pretty much like Shakespeare would be close to this. No, 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 no one invented this. He's just testing the model. The, um, also, he's adding the idea that you're constantly keeping uh, an, um, an encyclopedia active. 
So everything that happens while you're watching or while you're reading has to be noted. Okay, this happens, so this will have an effect and stuff. So you're, you're also in your mind uh, keeping this encyclopedia informed and adding entries to it. So he says, part of the pleasure in these modern television narratives comes from the cognitive labor you're forced to do filling in the details, which is really interesting because we don't tend to think that we're doing labor when we're watching television, but there is a huge mental exercise being done. This is also the case in classic literature. Balzac has in his house in Paris, you can find how all the characters of his human comedy, La Comédie Humaine, are interconnected. So people who really enjoy reading Balzac will end up saying, oh yeah, the cousin in Père Goriot ends up in that story, and there's an, a complete constellation of characters that is present in Balzac's story. That's how also how he kept people entertained. But this is not unfamiliar to you because, oh shit, it's the Marvel Cinematic Universe. This is what it looks like when you try to connect all the threads. There is no one on this earth that can convince me that this is not a complex operation of decoding. But it's been done in such a passive manner by seeing a film every four to three months you end up having this thread, and he even adds up uh, characters like um, TV series like uh, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. in here. So, and this even stops at Infinity War, so there's more that has been added since. There's going to be so much more. But the <laughs> where people will, will treat serial fiction as something that is simple because redundant, I like to counter-argue by saying yes, but by writing serially, you end up with this type of thing where everything is interconnected and everything, everything has an impact on one another. Uh, and while doing this, adding on to the multiple world hypothesis that I was speaking of, the brain is also constantly improving on things by saying, oh, well, they took that decision, but maybe it would have been this. Like entertaining those lines of thought and those lines of storylines that were taken or not taken, you are also exerting your brain or muscling that muscle to be able to craft stories, saying, would it have been better if that TV series had ended in this and that manner? Yes, ma'am. Yeah. yeah, yeah, there's a lot of experimentation there. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And, but what if? Oof. What if is a tradition that exists since the 70s and it's done, it, it, it is an experiment in asking what if, but it's also an experiment in saying that certain events are just pivotal? And that's what it did in the series. I think they really, like, there are some better episodes of the other, but once again, it's serial television, so it's not parts, but it's the whole. But once in a while, there are propositions by saying, well, the, we did not, like, we offered uh, Sam Wilson the role of Captain America. Let's see what happens if we give it to Peggy Carter. So it's like these types of uh, attempts through fiction of saying, what if, which is the best title for it. That's absolutely. Yeah. Well, that's the thing is that th it's it's a completely different field of study. Like that would mostly be communication study. But um, 
in, in personally, in my regards, uh, even though we call it reality TV, it is scripted. And the fact that it's scripted is that people have understood um, arcs. And they know, like, okay, you need to put this there, you need to put this there, and you need to, like, if we take that, that reaction shot and we put it here, let's see how that changes. So it still works. The only one that I don't know if you've heard about, I think it's in Big Brother in the United States. I, I haven't seen it, but I've read a lot about it. There's, um, like, the production were uh, getting, they were encroaching in the love interest of one of the characters. The guy constantly upvoted a girl that he was really interested in, and the production were like, oh, well, no, that matchup's not going to work out. So they kept uh, removing her from uh, um, challenges, I think, to the point where the, 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 I think it's a bachelor, sorry, it's like one guy. That guy got super fed up, and in his house, he, uh, like, there's a point where he said, oh, well, I'd, I'd go, uh, I'd, I'd date uh, Brenda. And they were like, oh, no, Brenda's not in here. And he understood that production was fucking with them. So he went, all right. And he ran out of the house and he jumped over the wall. So cameras started following him. <laughs> they cut to break. And it's as if it had never happened. <laughs> like they came back from, from ads and it was just the guy sitting <laughs> on the couch going, well, maybe Claudio will be better. All right, let's go. And it's just like you have that moment of, yeah, they sat him down, they went, look, you're not here for love, you're here to, and it's like one of those moments that I'm, oh, that is reality TV, like, what? But that's as close as I could see of being, it's even, it's, it's even written, his reaction is not written, but them saying, you come back into the house and you date someone, come on, is very much saying, get back to the script. Even though people will want to spiral out of the script, there's always someone coming back. Okay, so the need for improvement. There you go. Thank you very much. <laughs> if you have questions. Any questions? Everything's okay? No questions? If you have questions? <laughs>